we're going to uh, really go and, and deep dive into a particular story today. So if you do have your Bible, that would be great. If you insist on using your phone, that's okay too. Um, so following on from last week where Al was talking about the fire of the Spirit and, and the form in the early church, I want to continue looking at how God's Spirit moves um, through his presence, people. And I specifically want to look at the person of Peter as he is a bit of an archetype person. So when we use the term archetype, you hear us use that. It is really that an archetype is where there's an original pattern or model that gets replicated over time. So that can be a person, that can be a church, that can be lots of different things. Um, Peter both is an archetype in himself, but he's also someone that, that both led and spoke to the early church. And so um, I'm speaking next week. Hard luck. And um, what I'm going to do a bit more next week is look at the way that Peter wrote his letters to talk to presence people about how they continue to follow Jesus. Last week as well, Al reminded us um, of the, cur- the call of the early church from Jesus at the very start to wait. And Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Peter was there when he, when he was told by Jesus to wait. Peter was there when he was thrust out of the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Peter, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, stood up on that day, quoting the prophet Joel, saying that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And Peter's public declaration of who Jesus is um, and what he did was filled with the Spirit. And so when we look at Peter, we see a presence person. We see someone who, over a very long period of time, gives us a picture of what it looks like to be somebody that walks in communion with the Holy Spirit. We see him going from this cowardly person that denied Jesus three times to being the very same person who stood up fearlessly and declared who God is to the principal pallies and powers of his age that could have done him harm. He goes from someone that couldn't lead himself to someone that could lead thousands in a couple of minutes. And so Peter is also the person at the center of early church life. Um, when we read the words of Acts chapter 2, which say, as we have looked at a few times in this series, Acts 2 verses 42 to 46, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And these are the markers of presence people. And so I want to focus today on something that happened a number of years later. And I I want us to look out for the signs of the early church that are replicated in the story that you're about to hear. And at this stage in the story you're about to hear, um, 
is from Acts chapter 10. I'm going to go through the whole thing, okay? So it's a really, really long story. So I'm not going to read it out. Somebody else is going to come and read it for us. Um, but this is what it looks like to continue following Jesus, that, that God moves. This story is so important that we get it in long form. Luke hasn't tried to shorten it in any way, and you'll see that there's actually replication a number of times in it. If the gospel is going to spread from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you'll see that Peter has managed to get 45 miles in approximately 8 to 10 years. Maybe in some ways is isn't that far, but he was unfit to be fair to him. He's done Jerusalem, they've done Samaria, Samaria, Judea and Samaria. They haven't quite got to the ends of the earth, but they're getting there. And that's where we pick up our story in Acts 10. And Karen is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along in your Bibles. We're going for the whole chapter here. Okay. Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, "'Get up, Peter, kill and eat.'" Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Brilliant, Karen. Thank you. So that was good that you didn't have to listen to me for that whole time. Um, really important story. It is long, but let's get stuck into it and we'll try and go reasonably quickly. So there's some specific information about this guy, Cornelius. He is wealthy. He's in charge of a lot of men. He's a centurion. He's someone of status and influence, and he's a Roman citizen. He's also part of the oppressive powers of that area. And here we have a specific description at the start of our chapter where we're told all about his family, that they were devout, 
God-fearing and gave generously to those in need and that they prayed to God regularly. So they were devoted people. And so when I read that in Acts chapter 2 about the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We see the same rhythm here in Acts chapter 10 of these God, this God-fearing centurion who doesn't seem to have all the pieces together, but he still understands that there's a posture and a pattern that precedes the presence of God. We see the same pattern, the same forms, the same disciplines at work. And this is our first clue as the story unfolds that it's a significant one. And that Luke, the gospel writer, wants us to equate what is happening in the early church amongst the Jews with what is happening with this archetype person in Cornelius. You see, it's interesting to look at the fact that Cornelius is ignorant of all the facts of Jesus, but he's not ignorant of what a devoted life should look like. And his devotion captures the eye and the heart of God. And how much more can we who know about Jesus posture ourselves before God? No matter where we are in our knowledge of God, in order for us to be acceptable dwelling places, of the Holy Spirit, could it be that actually our posture, like Cornelius, is really, really important? So let's read again, if you get your Bibles, to, to verses 3 to 23, just so we can, we can actually go through this a bit. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, um, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He answered. The angel asked, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Peter, Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, sorry, that when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of its attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. And what we see in this from this man is that obedience overrides understanding. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know what this is about, but he decides straight away, I'm going to do this. I've heard a command from God. I'm going to respond immediately. And actually, this encounter with a centurion person should probably remind us of other encounters with centurions, and one in particular that Jesus had. And we find that in Luke chapter 7. So there's a centurion who has um, a servant who is sick, and he really cares for the servant, and he sends some of his other servants to Jesus to say, will you come and pray for my servant um, that he may be well? And then the centurion, who must have been a person of faith, sends another servant to stop Jesus along the road. And, and this is what we read in Luke 7. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. 
That is why I do not even consider myself worthy for you to come to me, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself were a a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell you this, one, one goes and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and turning to the crowd, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. You see, here we have another servant, or another centurion that understands authority and obeys because he is someone in authority and someone under authority. And you see, these type of people, they trust the command structure, and that's what's really important when it comes to the military and his training. It helps him to recognize and respond to the situations, even though he doesn't have all the information. So our centurion and our story is a bit like the centurion in Jesus' story, which is written by the same author, by the way, in Luke, who understands what authority and command is all about. And having devoted themselves to what they are involved in, in a military sense, they respond with obedience. Um, And sometimes we don't have a specific word about where we're going or what we're doing, but we respond to whatever the last command that God had given us is, that we follow him. And some of us are like that centurion, we find it easy we find it easy to follow God. For others, if we put ourselves in his shoes, we don't feel so comfortable. Gee, God says this, go and do this, go here, do that. And so to bring you some comfort, if you're not someone that finds it easy to respond to specific commands from God, I present to you, Peter, a more argumentative and speak first, think later type of person. Uh, one that I greatly admire for that reason. And so let's, let's take a look at, at, at Peter's vision, which is very different from the way Cornelius works. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as the reptiles of the earth and the birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And if he was a centurion, he would have said, okay, I'll do that. But he's not. His name's Peter. And he says, surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And probably by that stage, Peter's starting to get the hint. Three times is a bit of a common thing with him. And immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the vision and what it meant, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out and they found him. Okay, so Peter goes up to pray on the roof. And he falls into a trance. Now, part of me would love to tell you that he fell asleep. 
And I have looked at every translation around this because I would find it very comforting if I found somebody who started to pray and ended up falling asleep because I could really identify with that. And I'm sure that some of you could too. But I've even looked at this in the Greek. It's three compound words, and added together, they still don't say that he fell asleep. Okay? Um, but just as a wee side note, sleep and prayer very often come hand in hand, and let's not beat ourselves up if that happens. But this happens very, very quickly. He's not long into his prayer, and God speaks to him. He hasn't been praying for hours necessarily. He hasn't necessarily been reading the Holy Scriptures, but he has a rhythm of devotion that's well established. He's not even in his own house, but we see that um, there's a household full of people, and Peter finds somewhere to go and pray, that a person of devotions finds a time and a space and a place to pray. And actually, Cornelius did a very similar thing because it was actually during the busyness of the day that an angel came and spoke to him as well. So both Cornelius and Peter have encounters with God because they set aside time in the middle of the busyness of their day that they devoted themselves and it had an encounter. And as God begins to speak to Peter, there's a disagreement and there is confusion. And on God's command to Peter to kill and eat, he says, surely not, Lord. Or unlike Cornelius, Peter has a pushback on the vision. But what's really interesting about that is that Peter's blind obedience on this occasion would have robbed him of some important information and of, and of revelation. That God actually has set Peter up for an argument deliberately. And I hope that some of you find that relatable. That there's a dialogue. That God speaks and continues to speak. That he, God continues to reveal to Peter and that the conversation carries on. Because that's what relationship looks like. Peter responds with his concerns and his questions, and God brings further revelation. You see, the line, do not call unclean what I call clean, only comes when Peter says no the first time. When Peter questions God, more revelation comes. See, that's who God is and how he speaks. That's how relationships work. It's part of a dialogue. But what happens to us? And if we put ourselves in Peter's shoes, when God wants to do something that we think he isn't allowed to do, when God starts to move in a way that, that we, we don't really think um, is, is okay, and that's a real challenge for Peter here because he knows that the animals of God have shown him are unclean for, because that's been his experience for his entire life. For some of us, if we're going to be presence people, we may have to become familiar with and okay with things happening that we don't have experience of and that maybe we don't have theology for either. Because in this particular circumstance, Peter's theology won't allow him to obey God. It's not really interesting. So a little example from, from my life is I've seen the Holy Spirit move in power in lots of different ways, and maybe you have too. But I remember the first time that I heard somebody laughing in the Spirit, and I thought, oh, hang on. I didn't know we were allowed to do that. 
like, where is that in the Bible? But yet, if we heard it now, many of us have heard it so many times, somebody laughing in the spirit, the joy of the Lord coming upon them, that would be okay about it. But the first time it happens, we're like, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed, if, if, I, if I agree with what God's doing there. Just have a think about how ridiculous that can be when we see God doing something that we don't like. Or worse still, when we see God using someone that we don't like or that we don't agree with. And if we're going to be devoted presence people, we need to be okay with what the Holy Spirit is doing and how he is moving. We need to be willing to be open to learning along the way. Because that's what happens in relationship. The more you get to know someone, the more revelation comes. Sometimes we're like Cornelius and we need to just listen and obey, and that's good. But sometimes we need to be more like Peter and we need to challenge, we need to converse, we need to dialogue with God. Sometimes God is deliberately setting us up for revelation when he does that. When he takes us out of our comfort zone, when he takes us out of what we know to another place so that we can learn something new. So it seems to be that God knew exactly how Peter was going to react in that moment when he first saw that vision. But he wants, he's inviting Peter almost, go on, Peter, go on, disagree with me. Because I want to tell you something, I want to show you something. This is really, really important. But you see, God knows your personality. Some of you can't just accept everything that's thrown at you. Some of you have questions. Some of you, if you've actually tried to read the Bible, go, I don't know if I kind of agree with quite a lot of stuff in here. Or maybe you just overlook and move past that kind of stuff and could it be that in our questioning in our doubts that God wants to work and move and speak and reveal himself and so presence people cultivate relationship and journey with God because relationship grows on the road it grows on the journey it grows as we follow him and it's okay to question, because in your questioning, revelation comes, peace comes, breakthrough comes. But we too often forget that Christianity is about a relationship with the person of Jesus. And believe it or not, sometimes you can't find answers in here as to what God does in here and in here. But we have to trust and be led by the Spirit. So off Paul, uh, Peter goes to Cornelius's house. And what we see is that, that revelation enacted leads to revolution. And in this story in the New Testament, because the revelation of the clean and unclean that God has said, do not be called unclean, what I call clean, has to lead to something tangible. It's not just an intellectual breakthrough that, that Peter has had in that vision. The head knowledge alone isn't enough. Theory has to be put into practice because that's when true learning happens. And so when the knock comes to Peter's door and there's these guys who he doesn't know, there's no idea, they say, come and, you know, there's some guy and he's like a day's trip away, let's go. Off he goes. But he doesn't go on his own. He takes some people with him. And so we read that um, 
The next day, this is in verse 23, Peter invited the men into his house to be guests. The next day, Peter started out and took some brothers from Joppa who went along. And off they go to Caesarea. See, Peter doesn't go alone, not because he's worried about his safety, I don't think, anyway, but because the Christian faith has lived and journeyed in community. He shares the journey, and so therefore they all share in the breakthrough and the revelation that comes later in the Roman centurion's house. And actually, in chapter 11, if you were to go there, but we definitely don't have time for that, you'll find that the people who came with Peter are able to tell the story of what God did at Cornelius' house. And so maybe what God is doing in you right now and in individual people in the church right now isn't just for one person. That what God is saying to you isn't just for you. And could it be that personal breakthroughs lead to community breakthrough? We think very individualistically. And so even when we think about this Presence People series, we kind of think, well, what's God going to do in me? And that's all great. But what's God going to do in the person sitting beside you? What's God going to do in the community around you? And what happens when we start to think about how God speaks to all of us, is that breakthrough that is fought for, for one of us, becomes available to all of us. And so are we generous enough to experience and to battle for breakthrough, whether it's revelation or in the gifts or in some other area in our life? Are we generous enough to experience that for ourselves? And then figure out how we can welcome other people into that too. Because that's what presence people do. Because we're part of a family. We're part of our community. This is not an individual exploit alone. And so the story goes on. Let me read from, from 20, 24 to 33. So Peter goes into this house he found a large gathering of people and he said to them, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to be associated with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call man impure or unclean, any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. May I ask why you have sent me? Peter introduces himself by basically saying, I shouldn't be here. I you used to think you guys were unclean. Um, so he hadn't read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, but God has shown me, God has shown me that I need to look at things differently. So God has shown me, trumps his religious background, it trumps his theological assumptions, it trumps his lifelong entrenched patterns. God has shown me is where the revelation sits. But Peter had actually kind of already figured this out because see when the man came to him in Joppa, what did he do? He invited them into his home and he said, come and, come and eat with me, come and stay overnight and then, then we'll go. He showed 
welcome to these foreign strangers. He invited them into his home. He didn't think, well, if, if I invite these heathens into my house, they're going to make this house unclean. It's not even my house anyway. It's somebody else's that I'm just staying at. He'd already understood that because Jesus had shown him that what is in someone else doesn't make us clean or unclean. So everything within Peter is saying, I shouldn't be here, except for the Holy Spirit within him. So how often does that happen to you? That everything within you is saying no, and the Holy Spirit saying yes, yes. And what, what voice do we listen to? How do we actually cultivate and learn to do that? How do we sort of learn to go, oh, do you know, that's weird, and I don't like that person, and the Holy Spirit's going, you know, I'm moving here. Lives are being changed. Broken people are being healed. How do we listen to the voice of the Spirit when God takes us beyond our comfort zones? Peter is humble in his approach in this situation, and he actually asks this question, may I ask why you've sent me? And, and that's one of the things that we teach our compassion team when we're working with people in our community, that we don't have this assumption that, hey, we're the church, we're the compassion team, we know everything, you're coming to us for help. We ask them to take a place of humility. And when we do that, and what Peter does in this story, the first thing that happens is that when he meets Cornelius, Cornelius falls down at his feet on the ground. And what has Cornelius done in that moment? He's created a power dynamic. He has said, you're really important. I am no longer important. Everybody in Cornelius' household looks at their boss, and their boss is at the feet of this random guy. And Peter says, stand up, because I'm only a man. And presence people are connected with who God says that they are. And they do not entertain the power systems of this world. In fact, they subvert them and they change them. They ignore them. They decide, I'm not going to be involved in this. So when people come to us for help, they're very often coming in a subservient way. I need help. Will you help me? And we need to learn to ask them what's really going on, to give them power of agency, to allow them to speak, to overcome the power systems that are there. So Peter listens to Cornelius, and he's like heard this vision a couple of times already. You heard it in that, in that big, long thing. And he hears what God has done and how this angel appeared to Cornelius. And then we read in verses 34 and 35. Peter began to speak. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Don't you just love this? God does not show favoritism. So he tells that to these people who don't know Jesus yet. And one of the first things that he tells this entire household gathered together, God does not show favoritism. Such an important thing. But when it comes to actually being presence people, we need to get this. God does not show favoritism, 
how many of you don't actually believe that? How many of you look to others and think, oh, God seems to really like them, and he doesn't like me as much because I've done this or I've done that or, or I, I'm not as holy or I'm not as intelligent or I haven't been around as long or whatever it is. God does not show favoritism. Wouldn't it be great when vulnerable people walk through the door of our church that we say to them, do you know, God doesn't show favoritism. He loves you all. He loves us all because we are his children. And then in verses 36 to 44, Peter gives them the gospel. He tells them who Jesus is and what he's done and how he's moved. He explains that they themselves, Peter and his mates, are witnesses to what Jesus has done. And then he says in verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judges of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So Peter declares who Jesus is. He declares and provides this revelation of who Jesus is. But then... Something happens which I absolutely love. It almost seems like the Holy Spirit thought, do you know, Peter, you've gone on long enough. Let's just get on with this. I'm going to move. I'm going to move. But I was reading it again recently, and I noticed that it says, all the prophets testify about him. Well, if all the prophets testify about him, Peter himself, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, quoted one particular prophet in Acts chapter 2, the prophet Joel from Joel 2. And so Peter's words out of his own mouth were, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so all the prophets testify that the spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And I just I like to picture in my head the Holy Spirit going, this is my cue. This is a bit where I come in. The prophets declared it. Here it comes. And the Holy Spirit moves on all of these people. And theology goes out the window completely. Did they repent? Did they say the sinner's prayer? Did they really fully understand the gospel? And Peter and his friends look, and what do they do? What do? How do they decide that these people have got it? That these people are okay? That these people are, are, are followers of the way? Because the Holy Spirit said so. The Holy Spirit fell upon them and said, these are my people. These are my people. And Because then Peter looks at them and goes, well, there's nothing to stop you just getting baptized now. Get into that water as well. I'm not sure that's the right way around. Theologically, are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to get filled with the Spirit and then get baptized? Do you not get baptized in water first and then filled with the Holy Spirit? Surely that would be better or more right. But Luke is describing this pivotal moment for the church. But you know what? It's not just 
a pivotal moment for that church and that family and for Cornelius. It's actually our pivotal moment. I think that's one of the reasons why in Acts they spend an entire chapter going into this in detail because the gospel had moved from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, but it hadn't got to the ends of the earth. It hadn't actually gone beyond anybody that was either a Jew or half a Jew, really. And then the Gentiles come in. Those unwashed, unclean Gentiles. Look at them. Look at them all. Right here. Unclean. Outside of God's plan. But now we're all in. Isn't it just as well that this story happened? Or we'd still be out, potentially. And the Holy Spirit said, this is all right. This is good. And when, the, when Peter and his friends... The story of this got back to Jerusalem before they did, because when they get back, they're in trouble. Because the authorities, you can read about this in Acts 11 if you want, the authorities go, what are you guys up to? What are you, what are you, like the unclean Gentiles? And so they tell them the story, and they say, yeah, I know that we thought like this, we weren't really sure if it was for them or not, but the Holy Spirit thought it was for them. Isn't that amazing? And we see this household of faith, and we see in this family with Cornelius that the host of the household is the Holy Spirit, that he is the authenticator, that he creates a new family, that the gospel going to the ends of the earth starts to look like families and households that look like this situation that we see with Cornelius. This is the first household of faith, the first church plant completely outside of Judaism. This is us. This is our moment. And the seal of their approval is not in the possession of a book. It is in possession by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, as presence people, maybe our authenticator should be the power the person, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because you can buy these freely in any shop, but they don't provide authentication that you're a follower of Jesus. They don't provide authentication that your life has been changed and transformed and renewed. The person and the work of the Holy Spirit does. Now, I am not saying in any way that this is unimportant, but without the Holy Spirit, it's just a book. And so will we be marked as people of the presence? Will we love the revelation of Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit through the book? But realizing that having one of these in my hand isn't going to get me to heaven. Having one of these in my hand is not going to see my life transformed or the communities transformed unless the Holy Spirit speaks to me through it. And so can we do both? So okay, do we have to choose one or the other? I don't think we do. And can we be like this house of Cornelius, devoted people? So he was already devoted before the Spirit came devoted to God's word, to prayer, to spiritual disciplines, but devoted 
to the person of the Holy Spirit as well. It's fascinating, just as I am wrapping up now, um, it's fascinating that how often people come in to physical places and spaces and say, what's going on in here? Al was talking about it for a few weeks, but I was thinking about how, how when we first decided to have church in the High Street Mall, um, before we'd even met as a church, um, I was in the building on my own one day, and this drunk guy staggered in um, because he'd missed his pub by about two doors, and he came into the church building, and he stuck his head in, and he went, what's going on in here? He said, I said, um, this is going to be a church. And he went, I know it is. And um, he said, I can feel it. I can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in this building. And, um, and, he, and he said to me, who are you? And I said, I'm one of the pastors. He said, I know you are. I know that he said that afterwards, but just work with me. I, he said, I can feel it. I can feel that there's something different about that. Now, I would kind of think, drunk person, talking rubbish, the amount of times that that happens is unbelievable. The amount of times people come into our church buildings and go, what is this? There's like a peace. The amount of times even that people can't articulate it, but they just want to be in the spaces where we are at because they feel and they sense and they know that it is different, that they feel at peace being here, that something that they can't even put into words describe brings them to these places. Because we, like Peter, are carriers of the presence. There's this lovely bit in, in Acts where um, you know, Peter and the Holy Spirit have a wee chat about like, you know, that they should go immediately with the guys who are coming to the door. Peter's like, you know, the Holy Spirit said to me, we should go meet immediately with these guys and, and off we go. And you read that throughout the book of Acts. You read three things like, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Right? It's almost like the Holy Spirit is a person. The way they talk about him in the book of Acts. Wow. Wouldn't that be something that we would love? That the Holy Spirit is just like a person. Presence people are, are people people. The Holy Spirit is not a person in the same way, obviously. But he is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, person. So let's go after the presence of the Holy Spirit as a person, not just as a feeling, not just as an experience, but as a person. So maybe we could think about how we interact with that. And I suppose for me, looking at this, I do feel like there are people here today and you're more of a Peter, you're more of an arguer, you're more of a, of a like, I'm not really sure about this kind of thing. And maybe this presence series has felt for you like, oh, I'm not really sure about this. Great. Because the Holy Spirit wants to dialogue with you. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this. Let's lean in a bit further. Um, so why don't we maybe stand?